take your Bible, please, and uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Today I want to begin with, uh, with a little word association. Uh, you know the drill. Uh, I say a word, in this case a name, and, and you say something that comes to mind. I almost said whatever comes to mind, but it probably would be good that you have some filter uh, before you shout it out. So, so I say a word or a name in this case, and you say uh, something that comes to mind. Uh, very simple. I'm sure you're all very familiar with the, with the uh, exercise, and so, so here we go. Uh, uh, what comes to mind when you hear the name Corey Tin Boom? Hiding place? Mm-hmm. World War II? Kurds? Oh, courage. <laughs> courage, okay. Yes. Holocaust. Good. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how about when you hear the name Billy Graham? Evangelist? A little bit louder? Billy Graham? Man of God? Crusades, good, okay. And how about the name uh, uh, Mother Teresa? When you think and hear of Mother Teresa, what comes to mind? Ooh, you're going to have to, what was that one now? Compassion, sacrifice, Calcutta, yes, charity, uh-huh, okay. And then finally, how about the name C.S. Lewis? Writer, Narnia, Mere Christianity, Reformed Atheist, okay, all right, good, anyone else? I think most of us are familiar with these names because these names have become synonymous with certain events and specific stories and qualities. Each name means something to us, and as you may have noticed, each of these individuals uh, were professed followers of Jesus Christ. Even the name Jesus, the name Jesus, is rich with meaning. Uh, You shall call his name Jesus, the angel said when foretelling Christ's birth, for he will save his people from their sins. And on the day of Christ's birth, the angel again said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. From the very announcement of his birth, Jesus is identified both as Lord and as the one who saves. And this reality, which is evidenced uh, throughout his birth, it's evidenced in his birth and throughout his life and in his death and resurrection is the essence of what we would call the Christian gospel. And the book of Acts is basically a story of how the gospel went out from Jerusalem and into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, 
and eventually to the ends of the earth. And as it took more ground, the name of Jesus Christ was becoming known in new places among new people. And as people heard of Jesus, many began placing their faith in Jesus and started to follow the way of Jesus. As we come to chapter 11 this morning, the advance of the gospel is extending into the regions of Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And in Antioch, a new name appears. The name by which followers of Christ would, be, uh, would come to be known from that time in that place to our present day in places all over the world. The name Christian. Many of us in this room are known by this name. So, because we bear the name of Christ along with all who have gone before us, my encouragement from this passage is simply to wear it well by the grace of God. Let's read this together. Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the, hand, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. Father, we want to thank you again for our time in the scripture this morning. Thank you for the, uh, really the gift your word is to us and how it reveals your heart to us. And we pray for even more revelation. Or, or I should say, Lord, that our eyes would be opened more to what you've already revealed. And so would you do that among us this morning? 
Would you give us, would you enable our hearing of your word? Would you uh, make our hearts to be receptive of your word? Uh, Would you teach us from your word? And would you change our lives by the power of your word and the person of the Spirit of God? May Jesus Christ be known among us and may his name be exalted in our lives. For in his name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Antioch was uh, founded in 300 B.C. by uh, Seleucus Nicator, who founded the Seleucid Empire and named the uh, city after his father, Antiochus. Uh, Often called Antioch the Beautiful, it was an impressive city. Known, uh, famous for its architecture and its colonnades, its marbled boulevards and fountains uh, throughout. Absorbed by the Roman Empire in uh, 64 BC, it became the, the, uh, the Roman capital of the imperial province of Syria and was the third greatest city in the empire behind Rome, of course, and Alexandria. An estimated half million or more people lived in Antioch at the time of uh, Acts chapter 11. It was a diverse uh, cosmopolitan city uh, that largely consisted of Greeks and Jews as well as people from Persia and India and even China. Verse 19 reveals that a migration of sorts was underway, a a result of persecution in Jerusalem, which was about 300 miles to the south. Uh, We can read of this, or we did read of this, back in chapters 7 and 8, but Jewish believers who had scattered because of Stephen's martyrdom and the subsequent uh, attacks against the church were fleeing northward into Phoenicia and Syria and to the island of Cyprus. Basically, they were refugees looking uh, to resettle elsewhere. Now, apparently, they hadn't heard uh, about the events of chapters 9, 10, and 11, about the conversion of Saul to Christianity, the same Saul who'd been persecuting the church, nor did they know about the conversions of Cornelius and his household, uh, which signaled the reach of the gospel to include non-Jewish people. So they're unaware or being unaware of these events. These believers from Jerusalem were careful, we're told, to not talk to anyone except other Jews. Not until men from Cyprus and Cyrene, uh, Africa's northern coast, not until they arrived in Antioch did the preaching of Christ extend to... uh, to Greek-speaking non-Jews. And it says that many turned to the Lord. Now, church, I want you to notice, it says many believers turned to the Lord. I take this to mean that just as in our day, 
apparently many people at that time uh, believed in God in a general way or maybe even in a religious way. But now through the preaching of Christ, they were coming to genuine faith in Jesus. It seems there was a revival of sorts in Antioch where true repentance was taking place. Believers from all over were responding to God and the work of God around them by turning from casual belief to genuine devotion. And the application for us here is that at some point, we all must come to a place of similar conviction, a place where we turn from general belief in God to personal faith in Jesus Christ. We must acknowledge Jesus as Lord of our lives and the one who saves us from our sins and the sinful moral corruption within, the one who reconciles us to God. With such repentance and faith, we, or without such repentance and faith, we remain lost in our sin and under its eternal consequences. So you know here that it's possible to believe in God and, and not be saved. And so we come to this place of personal faith in Jesus Christ where we are personally uh, entrusting, we are in individually, we are entrusting our lives to the care of Christ. And so this newly formed church in Antioch was reflective in many ways of the city itself. It was ethnically diverse. Uh, as people from other places and cultures were resettling there, the hand of the Lord was with them, we're told, signaling that God was drawing them and, and bringing them together and thus extending the reach of His grace into new territories and deeper, deeper even into their own hearts. I also want you to see the sovereignty of God here. Who at that time would have thought that persecution in Jerusalem would be used by God and result in a thriving church in the great city of Antioch, one strategically planted by God to become the staging ground for worldwide missions? God was moving in the hearts of men and women and arranging circumstances in a way that works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I just want to encourage us by this, if for nothing else, to say, let's not waste our trials and the afflictions that come our way like those persecuted in Jerusalem and forced to flee, who knows? In your trial, you may be on the verge of something incredible that God has planned for you and for those around you. Something you cannot even see or imagine right now. 
And therefore, verses 19 and 21 describe what I would call the formation of the church in Antioch, while verses 22 through 26 tell of its growth in grace. More specifically, they show how the church in Jerusalem supported the work in Antioch, namely or specifically by sending Barnabas to verify and affirm what was taking place there. Now, we've read about Barnabas already in our study of Acts. First, in Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, where we learn that his name means son of encouragement. And then we learned of him again, and we saw him again in Acts 9, 27, where he was seen vouching for Saul when others in the church weren't buying that Saul had indeed come to faith in Christ. Barnabas was a key figure in the Jerusalem church. He was a vital member of that congregation. He was someone they clearly admired and whose opinion they respected. So they sent him to Antioch to report on what was happening there. And when he arrived, I love this, he saw God's grace at work. He saw it. There was visible evidence of the goodness of God in that congregation. He saw changed lives and spiritual transformation and people coming to the Lord. He saw a budding church coming together and the gifts of God bestowed uh, among that congregation. In fact, the word for grace here, charis, is the same root used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the spiritual gifts that God gives to believers in Christ and distributes throughout the church. Barnabas therefore saw a church of people who had come to Christ, who had been gifted by the Holy Spirit, and were using those gifts in ways that demonstrated the goodness of God. What a beautiful example of church life. Did you know, church, that one of the best ways to encourage others is simply by being a conduit of God's grace for them? God graces you and you're simply passing it along. For them, or by telling them how you see God's grace running through their lives. All of this reminds us that our faith is to be active and visible to others. Individually, each of us, as a recipient of grace, is, uh, is to use the gifts God has given to serve His church and shine as a light in the world, and collectively, we're a city on a hill, visible to all, so that those outside the church can see in us just how good and gracious God is. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch and saw such Visible demonstrations of God's grace, it made him very glad. It encouraged him because it was a sign of God's presence in that place, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, to remain faithful because faithfulness doesn't happen by accident. We have to apply ourselves to it. As fallen people, 
in a fallen world, our natural human tendency is to choose our own way over God's, which inevitably leads to lostness and aimless wandering. Which I think why, that's why purpose and being purposeful is important. The words with steadfast purpose mean according to a set plan, which emphasizes that God has a plan, that He's working to perfection. God seeks us and He saves us and He intends to sanctify us and ultimately to fully restore us to Himself uh, along with creation itself. Steadfastness is crucial because our trust in God is under constant attack. Our feelings, don't they? Our feelings often betray us. And we're prone to wonder or to question God's grip on our lives. Prone even to give up altogether. I mean, have you ever felt... Have you ever felt as if your faith was under attack? And not by outside sources, but by from within your faith was under attack from within have, you ever, have your feelings ever betrayed you or 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 left you uh let you down or steered you in the wrong direction of course i think we've all experienced that and therefore barnabas exhorted the people in this way and in a sense the fact that he did is comforting because it shows that our our proneness toward faithlessness is not unusual It seems he knew what we all know to one degree or another, that if not for God's sustaining grace, we'd be lost over and over again. And I just want to say that we need more Barnabases in our lives. We need people who understand the human condition, who understand us and where we're coming from and where our struggles lie, people who cheer us on and point us to God, people who come alongside of us and tell us to hang in there, to keep the faith, to lean into grace rather than our feelings that are predictably unstable. Do you have a Barnabas in your life? Are you serving as a Barnabas for others? We need Barnabases, do we not? What a great encourager he was. A good man, it says. In fact, apparently this is the only time in the entire book of Acts where where an individual is described as being a good man man or woman, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, by faith in God, Barnabas exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And a great many people were coming to the Lord. They were being added to the Lord, not added to the church notice, but added to the Lord and therefore to the church. Because if you belong to the Lord, you automatically belong to the church. And I I don't want us to miss this nuance here because today we have people, I, I fear at least, that we have people attending churches who may belong to their church, but not to the Lord. 
They don't belong to the Lord because they've never truly acknowledged Him as Lord. They may be decent people, humanly speaking, but when it comes to the lordship of their lives, they haven't turned from their sins and surrendered the throne of their hearts to Jesus. And may it never be the case here at East Parkway that we would belong to the church and not to the Lord. May we be people who belong to the Lord... And because we belong to the Lord, we belong to His church. The church in Antioch was growing numerically at a rapid pace. And, it, and as it grew, as it grew in numbers, Barnabas knew that the people would need to grow also, meaning grow in their understanding of Christ. And because there was more people than he could tend to by himself, he left for Tarsus notice to find his old pal Saul. Saul had been off the grid for about a decade, but Barnabas never forgot him. And as he saw what was happening in Antioch, he sensed that Saul could play an important role. And so he recruits Saul and brings him to Antioch. And together they begin a year-long teaching ministry that essentially served as Disciple Making 101. Saul had been growing in grace too. Upon his conversion to Christ, he came out of the gates overzealous, remember? Largely unaccepted. He was rocking the boat, even in the church. And so the Jerusalem church sent him to his hometown of Tarsus, where for the next 10 years, he lived in relative obscurity. He writes in Galatians 1 that he did some preaching during that time. Uh, many New Testament scholars believe that it was during this period, this 10-year period, when, the, when, when he had the visions that he describes in 2 Corinthians 12. It was probably during this time when he came to the conclusions uh, he writes about in Philippians 3, where he speaks of counting everything else as loss when compared to the, to the worth of knowing more of Jesus. So when Barnabas shows up and tells him what God was doing in Antioch and how the people need help, I imagine Saul jumping at the opportunity for he had learned over time, that 10-year period, he had learned that it isn't your work for God that matters most, it's His work in you that makes all the difference. And from the example of Barnabas and Saul, we find that uh, disciple-making takes it requires time and intentionality under their tutelage the disciples at antioch learned more about jesus and what being a follower of jesus entailed and as they grew as they grew in their faith the grace of christ became more evident to those around them and the people of antioch uh, began calling them christians What's clear from this statement in verse 26 is that they weren't calling each other by that name, at least not at first. Rather, their lives were such that others around town 
could look at them and tell that they followed Jesus. And thus they coined this term Christian. I love that this causes us to consider what people outside the church think about us in the church. What do they see in us that reflects the person of Jesus Christ? What do your what do your friends, your classmates, your co-workers, your neighbors, your family members, do they see Christ in you? Does your life testify to your faith in the Lord? Do they know that you love Jesus and that you are growing in Jesus? Are you growing in the grace of God in a way that others can see it? And it's making a difference. It's making a difference in the, in the neighborhood and in the community and in the world. With, with all due respect, we, we probably shouldn't call ourselves Christians unless you are one. Because not only does it send the wrong message to a watching world, hear this, it creates, it, it, it creates a religious facade in your own heart that, that deceives you and God doesn't want for you. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, shouldn't we be sure that we're living for Christ? So we have the formation of the church in Antioch, followed by its growth in grace and how the Jerusalem church supported the work. And then in the last section here in in chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, we see the church in Antioch reciprocating by serving the church in Jerusalem. It says that prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, a man named Agabus, told of a coming large-scale famine. Now, historical uh, records reveal that that there were several famines in various parts of the Roman Empire during the reign of Claudius. Claudius reigned from about 41 to 54 AD, uh, and and there there were 
this included several famines in Judea during the early years of his reign. And so the words all over the world, when it says there would be a great famine all over the world, this is likely just a general statement regarding the many regional famines that were occurring during that time. And historians believe that this particular famine, uh, the one being referenced here, <clears throat> took place sometime between A.D. 40, 45, 46, or maybe 47. What's noteworthy about this, though, isn't the famine itself, but the way in which the Antioch church responded to the news. Did you see it? The church in Jerusalem, uh, they were just determined, this Antioch church was determined to help their Christian brothers and sisters in Judea and that church in Jerusalem. And so the church in Antioch took an offering and each member gave according to his or her ability. And then they sent the financial gift to Jerusalem through Barnabas and Saul. I just think this is a wonderful picture of two sister churches sharing resources for, for each other's benefit as they were able I mean, the church in Jerusalem uh, essentially shared staffing resources in that they sent Barnabas to Antioch uh, and, and Barnabas stayed there for a, better, for a year or more, for the better part of a year. And the church in Antioch shared financial resources by taking a collection for, uh, for the church in Jerusalem in preparation for the famine that was coming. Again, just a great picture of two sister churches coming together to help one another as they were able. I also believe that this passage is very helpful and informative when it, when it comes to how we respond to disaster and disaster relief. I remember being in New Orleans... Uh, after Hurricane Katrina, we partnered with World Hope and we took a, uh, a team from the church to help with the relief effort there. Some of you were on that team. We were on that trip together. And as we toured the various wards and districts around New Orleans and saw the absolute devastation, I was shocked to hear that some so-called Christians and so-called Christian church churches refused to help the people because some so-called Christian pastors were preaching that Katrina was God's judgment upon the people of New Orleans and therefore they got what they deserved. Now how cruel and insensitive can you be? What kind of person would say such things to people who were suffering so intensely? Maybe Job's friends, right? <laughs> but we all know that theirs isn't the example to follow. Listen, when disaster strikes, people need help and relief and if we're able to share 
uh, verbally, if we're able to give a verbal witness to the gospel of Christ, fantastic. That's, that's wonderful. But sometimes we need to get involved just to share the gospel through the demonstration of Christian care. Like the congregation at Antioch who hears of a famine and takes a collection. And, and notice how this collection was, was taken. I don't think we should miss this either. There's, there's, a, there's a key giving principle here. It says they, they, they all gave as they were able every one according to his ability. Now, now look at this. It's not everyone as if merely referring to the group. Like the group gave. No, no, no. It, it, actually, it actually says every one. Uh, in other words, referring to each individual or perhaps household. Every one gave as they were able. It didn't, the amount didn't matter. The amount did not matter. What mattered was, the, the, was that each person was coming to this place of personal assessment before the Lord and determining what they were able to contribute. But they all wanted to contribute. So when it comes to giving to the church today through tithes and offerings, I just think we should realize that, that, that you, we all, each one of us, every one, plays an important role and you can make a difference we shouldn't miss this opportunity to consider before the Lord what, what God would have us contribute to the needs of the church. These Christians were compassionate and thoughtful givers. They were determined to help. They were determined to help. And thus, from its earliest days, the church in Antioch was an outward-looking congregation. And by chapter 13, just one chapter away, by chapter 13, Antioch becomes the staging ground for worldwide missions. Let me close with, with just a brief recap. When it comes to personal takeaway or personal application, I think this passage, in this passage, we've, we've covered the need for true repentance and faith, the need to trust God and His sovereignty when affliction comes your way, the need for our faith to be active and visible, able to be seen by others. 
the need for faithfulness with steadfast purpose, the need for more Barnabases in the church, more encouragement, a, a culture of encouragement. The need to find a Barnabas or to be a Barnabas, hopefully both. The need to belong to the Lord first and then the church. The need to grow as a disciple of Christ and to help disciple others. The need to respond to the needs of others by being compassionate and thoughtful givers. Certainly, there's something there that you can take home with you today. When Barnabas arrived, he saw evidence of God's grace among them. He encouraged them to remain in grace. And under his teaching, as well as Saul's, the disciples grew in grace and became known as Christians. And that's still the model for us today. So as those who share with them in bearing the name of Christ, church, let us wear it well by the grace of God. Amen. Father, what, a, what an amazing gift you've given us that, that we can share in this great name. And so help us indeed, as we've learned from your word here, help us to to, to be a reflection of Jesus in the church and in the community so that others would know where our allegiance stands. Make us to be compassionate people, thoughtful people, giving people, encouraging people for the expanse in advance of your kingdom in places near and far. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.